Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Kaif Syed. In this episode, co-producer Alejo Stark speaks with black and queer abolitionist writer Stevie Wilson. Stevie is being held captive by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections and was recently released from solitary confinement. He speaks about the importance of abolitionist study as a space of common encounter that undermines the hold that the carceral state has on our lives, both inside and outside prison walls. My name is Aleko, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project. Today, we speak with Stevie Wilson. Stevie is a black and queer writer, activist, and student who is currently being held captive by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Hello, Stevie, and welcome to our show. Uh, hello. Thanks for having me. It's great. It's great to have you on. Uh, we're glad that, that you're out. So we, we know that you recently got released from, from solitary, I believe, on October 17, right? Uh, a few yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, I got transferred from uh, Smithfield. I'm not at SCIC yet. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm here behind these walls. Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution. Say it. This call is subject to reporting and monitoring. Like, being in that relationship behind the wall sometimes means me more than an ally, mean an accomplice, actually. And uh, it was a situation where a prisoner was attacked by two guards, and um, I kind of had an action that we did online, and the administration found out about the action, and I was behind it. And so they uh, they moved to get me out of the way and kind of buried me in the hole. But thankfully, because of the support that I had outside, um, we were able to apply pressure on them, and they got me out of the hole, but they transferred me to another prison. So now I'm, uh, I was three and a half hours away from my family, and I'm six hours away from my family, about 40 minutes south of Pittsburgh. Wow. So this, this is basically in direct retaliation against organizing Definitely. on the inside, right? Definitely. And it's something to be expected, though. Like I said, if you, when you do this type of work behind the walls, it's not about being an ally. You will become an accomplice. And so whatever that person is doing to that person, they're going to try to do it to you also. So I knew at one point they were trying to bury the young man in the hole because when they attack us, they try to flip it and say, you know, he attacked them. So they'll bury him from six to nine months in the hole. And because we were successful in getting him out of the hole into a safer prison, safer, because no prison was safer, but safer than when he was in, you know, they, I became the target after that he was gone. And so uh, I was able to come up out of that. Like, once again, because of the people like Casey Goonan, Sarah Jane Reed, and Ian Alexander, and NNJ in Critical Resistance, I was able to come out of the hole. I did about two months battling with these people. We were able to come out of the hole and, um, and be placed uh, at Fayette now. So, but the work doesn't stop. The work doesn't stop, you know. Yeah, do you, do you have a sense that this is also an indirect attack on the sort of self-organized abolition study groups inside as well? Yeah, I think, I think well, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, that prison was a little different where many of the groups that we were doing were actually taking a place of programming that they had actually discontinued, right? So there was like, there was a lack of programming there. So we were putting together like the Transformative Justice Group and that was something that they, they liked. They gave us space for it. They gave us space for it. You know, um, and what's happening in Pennsylvania is because of the, the rehabilitation programs have been gutted, the educational programs have been gutted, there's been a space opened up for prisoners to initiate groups, right? Um, and so that's what we did at, at Smithfield, you know, and, it, and, and I'm here at Fayette, it's kind of the same thing now, you know, where people don't have anything to do and the prison wants them to do something, you know, so uh, once again, there's an opening for us here. So tell us a little bit more about the these abolition study groups inside that, that you help run. Okay. Can you tell us more about what you'll do and, yeah. Well, the first one we was called 9971, obviously references to Attica, and it was a general 
uh, abolition study group. We started with something like uh, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. And what we do is we would do a chapter reading, and then we would come back and we have discussion questions. Uh, we focus a lot on definitions because this is the first time many people were uh, hearing about abolition. You know, we used to say, where were our prisons? They thought we were crazy. You know, the first thing that came to their mind, what are you going to do with the murders and the rapists and things like that? And so we had to really talk about uh, basic definitions and things like safety and community and things like that. So that was the largest group because it was more generalized. We also had a group called Circle Up, which is a transformative justice group. Most of the men there were under the age of 25, about 23 young men, and they were doing a program called Circle Up, and they were talking about transformative justice, how we applied inside the prison and in our families and our communities. SAS was uh, the pre abolitionist group, and that was because it was – that group we started because it was sometimes difficult to talk about those type of issues in 9971, right? So we had a group uh, that went through uh, Catholic genders and career injustice and, and uh, works like this, from an abolitionist perspective. And then we also had a uh, bow type books uh, book club, which 10 prisoners were involved in. And uh, bow type books, it used to be Nation's Book, would send in a, a book each month with some discussion questions and we would meet. It's like a book club. That has been taken over by Haymarket Books now. So here at Smith, uh, at St. Ed, we're going to be doing it. And Haymarket Books will be providing the books for us. So we're happy to have that uh, program still continue. That's awesome. I mean, can you tell us more about the importance of studying for you? So it seems like this is very much part of the programming, which is non-existent, as you're saying, but also it's it's also part of sort of abolitionist studying, right, together yeah, with the culture inside and, yeah. I think the first thing is that um, we understand that many people in prison don't have a strong academic background, right? We, or we didn't have really good experiences in school. And so um, what I found was that it was easier uh, to copy out chapters of books and to, to work through them together, especially uh, think about definitions, thinking about uh, how this, how this work applies to your particular life, your experiences. Zines were really big for us because it was more intimidating to give someone a book that was 200, 300 pages long and they read this, they probably wouldn't pick it up. But if I gave someone a zine that was three or four pages long, they could take a week and read that and we'll come back and we discuss it. So I, I tell you that zines play a major role in the work inside the prison, also because it's easier for me to disseminate zines than books less costly, and the, the administration doesn't see it. If I went to the yard and tried to give out 10 books, I wouldn't make it. But if I have 10 zines there, so I, mean, I can give them out. You see, so part of it also is knowing that inside of here, because you remember this much, a learned prisoner is an affront to the PIC, okay? So you have to do things on the slide and on the slip sometimes. So zines came in handy, really handy here. So it was a lot of uh, meeting with people, it was about definitions, you know, about meeting people where they are. Also, that's another thing, too, you know. Uh, some people don't read well, so we had to sit in groups and read. And, but they can express their experiences. They can talk about their experiences. Um, and so I think it was important. I think one thing that was very surprising to me is that uh, you have to explain <laughs> that prisons are necessary to prisoners. That was the thing that was most surprising to me because we're sitting here every day and we're realizing how this doesn't work. But people, are, people think there's no alternative to this, you know, and uh, – and so we have to tell them, okay, there is an alternative to this. It really is. And we see it every day. So abolition is not something that's something far, far away. And actually, some of it is here today, but everybody doesn't get, you know, everyone doesn't get a chance to be a part of that process. You know, do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? There's, there's, a, there's a way of undoing also the ways that the prison itself is naturalized very much inside, even though, of course, folks face the brutality of, of, of imprisonment and captivity. 
there's still a way in which that's natural, as you're saying, right? That that's still sort of totally, totally normalized. Well, what I want, what I'm trying to explain to people when I say abolition, and this is what I, this is why I ask that question, because I want them to understand that abolition is not something that's always in the future. I was explaining to them that if someone, a white, wealthy person, right, breaks the law, okay, what's the chance of this person being put in prison? It's not going to happen. Say this guy has a, a substance abuse problem, and uh, this guy, he's 21 years old, he's white, he's out in the suburbs, has a substance abuse problem, he breaks into his neighbor's house, burglarizes the house, gets caught, gets locked up. Probably going to keep him locked up. No, they're probably going to send him to some, you know, some, some drug treatment place. That's what's going to happen. That's abolition. That's abolition. That's abolition. Instead of, instead of locking him up, we're going to see where you need to be, treatment. You see, and that is abolition also. So I'm trying to explain to people that, you no, know, the, the solution isn't always called the police isn't always a jail or prison. There are other ways that we can deal with harm. And so when I explain it that way to them, then they see, oh, it's here. Abolition is here now, just that everyone doesn't get a chance to be a part of that process. How can we open it up to everybody? How can we open up the person is getting high and then committing crime to, to get high, then maybe we don't need to lock that person up. That's not the issue. We don't just call the police and lock them up. You know, maybe we can get them help with their substance abuse problem. And that's abolition. You know, and so... My task a lot of times in here is actually translating the work for the people in here. And that's one area I think that we're not doing too, too, too well in. I don't think we're doing too well in that area. Stuff that's actually being published, you understand what I'm saying? I don't think that it's actually accessible to a lot of people who are behind the wall. Stevie, I wanted to ask you precisely about this point, right? So in your writings also, you consider yourself a translator, right? And you, you just stated that right yeah. now. Yeah. The, the necessity to sort of translate PIC abolition theory to other prisoners is, is one of the key things that you find yourself doing. So I wonder if you could talk, one, a little bit more about that. But also, do you find yourself that you're also translating and thinking, uh, you know, theoretically inside for those on the outside? So in that sense... It's sort of a two-way process of translation, right, rather than a one-way process? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, well, one of the things that I learned early on is that um, uh, the necessity of translating. I found that uh, many of the works that I was reading, um, that when I gave it, the book to someone else or the, or the article to someone else, they really didn't get it. And when I broke it down, they got it. And, um, and so... That kind of way, the way that my, that my study groups changed because it was no longer about getting people the assignment and coming back the next week and we just assumed that people read it. It was actually about creating questions that would test the comprehension of the study group members. And uh, part of it also was, to the question also was that it was important for me that they were able to apply what they were learning to their lives or actually hold it up to their lives. Say, look, do so I find this to be true? I'm reading something by this author, and they're saying it's X, Y, and Z. Do I find that my experiences are X, Y, and Z? Do I have another way or I'm seeing something else? And that's something that, that uh, I'll give you an example. For instance, like um, when we talk about uh, organizing behind the walls, a lot of times what you hear is about divisions like gangs and racial divisions and things like that. Well, I'm in Pennsylvania, and that's not the case. In Pennsylvania, it's really geographical is that people like Philadelphia versus Pittsburgh or, you know, Harrisburg versus Allentown. And so when we would read certain things that would talk about the divisions based upon gangs and race, it didn't apply to Pennsylvania. So God would say that, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't apply here. 
And, well, tell us how does it slide in. So, well, you know, it's really geographical. You know how it goes down. And so I would have to tell people who are working in Pennsylvania that, you know, this is not, it's not, this is how it goes in Pennsylvania. It's not that it's about gangs or race. It's more about geography. You know, a black guy and a white guy from Philly are going to get along better than a black guy and a black guy from Pittsburgh. And it's just how it is. And so I think that it works both ways. There's some things that we thought we need to let people outside know so that we can work together better. And I think this people outside. Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution. Say it. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. I think people outside need to think about how to make the work more accessible. Oftentimes the work is not written towards prisoners or written for prisoners. That's not the audience. The audience is other academics, you know, or some other journal versus I'm asking myself, who writes for prisoners? Who writes for prisoners? And and that's the big thing. Um, and I think that that's why if we could get over that or we could somehow learn how to get around this, then we would see many more people in prison, all right, declare themselves abolitionists and working towards penal abolition. We would see it. So, so I have a question about that, right? So it seems like, on the one hand, you, you do sort of take or think about translation as a two-way process, right, inside and outside. Because I assume that, you know, also part of what you're saying is that folks on the outside also aren't necessarily understanding what, you know, the theory that's happening on the inside, right? So, yes. so that's yeah. why I was trying to push back on the sense of like, translation is a, is a two-way process, right? We have to translate stuff going in and stuff coming out. So in that sense, we might even think about translation as an abolitionist practice in some ways, right? To kind of continually undermine the walls and cages that seek to continuously, yeah. wow. you know, separate us, right? Yeah, you know what, and uh, just two more, two points about that. One is another, I want to talk about another issue real quick. It was the same thing as that, uh, working, work, okay? We talk about abolition and, let's say like work strikes, okay? And I was trying to explain to people, abolitionists outside, that that doesn't work in Pennsylvania. I was trying to explain that to them. That it's not like down south where, for like in Alabama, the guys work and they don't pay them, Right. Well, in Pennsylvania, they work, and some of these guys make $150 a month. And that's all the money they have coming in, and they're not willing to go on strike. You all right? You understand what I'm saying? And so I have to explain this to people on the outside why a work stoppage doesn't work in Pennsylvania. I think one thing that we have to think about also is that different things work in different regions, right? This is is that can't Pennsylvania at- State Correctional Institution. Say it. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. We can't, we can't say what works in California and Arizona is going to work in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Pennsylvania and Jersey are right next to each other, but they're very different as far as the prison systems and the culture, right? And so I think that that's important, too. Just going back, just one more point. The other thing about translation is that um, my background, personally, is that I worked for 11 years in nonprofits before I was incarcerated. And so um, what happened was I was used to dealing with a population where I had to do the same exact thing. I worked in aid service organizations, and I was dealing in the field with people, and I had to do the same exact thing where I was trying to explain what people needed to the administrators, right? And I was trying to explain what the administrators wanted to the people, the, the people who were being served. And so I find myself in that same, I think that's why I still have that same skill where I'm able to talk to prisoners, other prisoners about abolition, and then talk to abolitionists, uh, activists outside and say, look, this is what we need, or can you do this? So I think that uh, maybe what it was that I was prepared for because of the type of work I did out in the before I was incarcerated, you know, I think that's, a, that's why I've had this viewpoint. But I just realized that um, there's not – the communication isn't there before, between us a lot of times as far as people inside and outside. It's not really good communication. 
and good contacts. And I said this before to, to Casey. I said, you know, if someone says that you're involved in the American prison movement or you are a penal abolitionist and you're not in direct contact with somebody inside of the prison, you are wrong. You're wrong. Because I don't understand how you know what's going on if you're not in direct contact with somebody you're writing or talking to, emailing or something. I don't know how you know what's going on inside these walls. I don't understand it. So I think that's the problem. More communication needs to happen. Better communication needs to happen. Yeah, communication, and also, as you're saying, right, the sort of translation also geographically that's happening not only within inside and outside the walls, but also across different states, across different territories, right, different populations. I mean, certainly the case with the work strike, which you were mentioning, yeah. it, it was this constant process of, of translation, right, um, which which I think you see also as your theoretical and political practice inside, right? So I think also what you say and what you also mentioned in your writing is, the importance of sort of criticism, right, and self-criticism, right? Yes, yes, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes. I think um, it's very important. Um, That's always there. I think it's important for us to always look at what we're doing, right, and and hold it up to critique. You know, I think think it's – what I found is that in in this place is that people would know their own pain. Everyone knows their own pain they're going through. So – most people here can talk about racism, they understand, or anti-black racism, they understand, but they don't understand misogyny, uh, homophobia, and things like that. And so the thing is that what I realized is that people could see when they were being wronged, but they couldn't see how they were wronging other people. They couldn't see how they were contributing to someone else's oppression. And so it's important for us always to look at what we're doing and, and making sure we're not creating more oppression. It's always important for us to look at what we're doing and make sure we're not harming other people. Um and I think it's always about having a conversation about our values and making sure that we're, we're actually sticking with our values, you know, or talking about them. I just think that, that behind the walls, we're not getting a lot of critique. And what happens is that the people on the outside, I've said this before, people on the outside don't want to critique the people on the inside. You understand what I'm saying? It's a totally one-sided approach, right? It's you know, I've had good situations where someone will get on, like I'm having an interview right now. Someone on the, in a, an interview, and they're doing an interview, and they're talking about something from prison, and they make a statement that's misogynistic, homophobic, whatever, so on. So, and the other, the person doing the interview will not check them on it. Will not say, wait a minute, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute, and and just let it go. Okay, and so that and that does not help our movement at all, because the thing is that we have many people who are saying they're abolitionists or they're against this, this person or against this oppression, but they're only against one type of oppression. Like their vision of freedom when it goes so long is truncated. Their vision of freedom is truncated. Their definition of freedom does not extend to other people that are not like them or different from them. And so I think that a lot of times I'm doing it from here, but I think that people on the outside, I call it a freedom guilt. That's what I say. I call it, I've said this before to people, I call it freedom guilt. People on the outside feel that they can't critique people and activists and writers on the inside because I'm free and who am I to sit there and, and say something to them about what they believe or what they're going through. Yes, you're part of the same movement. You're part of the same movement. So if there's a guy who, I don't care how much of an abolitionist or, you know, uh, this person is anti-prison activist you think he is, but if he's saying something that's homophobic or, or, or misogynistic, you need to call him out for it. You just say, listen, man, oh, wait a minute, check, oh, wait a minute. And I think that's not ha- that's what's not happening. And that's why I make that point, because it's always important to realize that, because, you know, if there's a hierarchy in here. And when you are, if you are a queer, uh, trans, disabled, neuroatypical person, you're at the bottom. You're at the bottom here. And you'll find people who are in this movement, who are behind the walls, because some activists who will sell those people, that group, down the drain, 
for a little bit of some some type of perk. So I think it's important to, to check people and say, listen, man, what are you doing? What are you calling for? You know, in Pennsylvania, we just had a we just had a piece of legislation that went up that said basically, you know, if you're if you're uh, the life without parole, and they were trying to get rid of this thing. Well, basically, if you uh, committed a homicide and you know you fit X, Y, and Z category, we'll think about giving you some numbers. But they're going to shut the door and arrest these people. And some people were for that. They were like, okay, yeah, let's shut the door and arrest them. I can't support that. I can't support that. So I think sometimes when we think about what's being put forward, we have to be more critical. And I think that a lot of times people on the outside are afraid, or what I call a freedom guilt, whatever it is, to say to people inside, listen, man, that, that's, that's real homophobic, or that's misogynistic, or that's, just not, that's not abolitionist, what you're thinking. You know, that's not abolitionist. And so I think it needs to be, the only way we can get better in this prison, people behind this wall, and get better at the people on the outside who are partners, hold us to higher standards. they got to hold us to higher standards. Really yeah, so at the same time, right, it's it's not just denunciation and then stepping back, right? I mean, kind of you emphasize the, the BLA's practice of sort of unity, criticism, and unity, right? So there's a way of criticizing that it's not simply just pushing out, because otherwise... But that's why it's not, it's not, it's, it's not a... When I say, when I say, first of all, when I say critique and criticize, first of all, it has to be done from a perspective. First of all, I've always underlined what I do with radical compassion. I always talk about radical oh, compassion. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important to understand that when I'm critiquing somebody, it's not because I'm trying to tear you down, but because I want to make us better, you better, right? And so my critique actually comes from a space of love for the person because if I really don't, honestly, if I don't really, I find it hard to even be concerned with someone if I don't care about you. That's me personally. I guess people will do things and I don't really say anything to them because I really don't care what you're doing because you're a very negative person and I, and I don't want to get involved. That's just me to keep myself safe behind the walls. But what I'm saying is that my critique comes from a place of compassion for people. My critique comes from a place of love. It's not about tearing someone down. It's about building you up and building us up. So I do think there's a way that you can do it and there's a way that we should do it. It's about community. You know what I mean? So I don't think, I don't think it's about tearing anybody down or, or, or you know, just putting someone out there or, 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 or uh, I guess, considering someone disposable, we no longer need you. Now, that's not how it's supposed to be. You have to meet people where they are. You have one minute left. And give them the opportunity also to, 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 to say things that they feel honestly, you know, even if it is messed up. Because they know, well, that's how you feel. Okay, let's, let's talk about that. But i got to give you an opportunity and some ground to say that, you know. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes or read their transcripts on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.